0: I'm very humbled to be here. I want you to know that from the outset. I looked at the lineup of these speakers here and I thought, what am I doing here? There are men and women who are much better communicators than I, but I am humbled by the invitation. Thank you, President Graves, for extending that my way, and it's a joy for Sue to be here with me as well. And I'm honored to be here, too, because preaching holiness is my passion. For 30 years, I have been honored to preach the full gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Not only that He forgives us of the guilt of the sins that we've committed, but He is also able to break the power of sin in our lives. And uh, it's not just a doctrine to me. It is my passion. And it took me a while to figure out uh, how to translate that, you know, that's the big challenge as a pastor. And uh, of course you've got to live it, you've got to believe in it, it's got to be part of you. It took me a few years as a pastor to figure this out, though I was preaching holiness, but I wasn't necessarily having that demonstrated in the, in the leadership of our church. And I woke up one day and realized I had half of my board that really, I wasn't sure they believed in holiness. That's a scary moment when you're a pastor of a Nazarene church, and you realize that. And uh, God began to frame in my mind uh, His strategy. It's involved a lot of things, but one of the most strategic things that God led me to do, and I just opened this up uh, today before we get into the Word, just to share this with you if you're a pastor here. Uh, in addition to preparing people for membership, we also lead them in the experience of entire sanctification. And I have a class, just like our membership class. In fact, that's why I was late to the Holiness Summit. Because last Sunday, I was teaching my living life to the max class, leading a group of people into the experience of entire sanctification. Every time I teach this class, without exception, I'll have at least two-thirds of the people in that class make that commitment that day. And so consistently, having that month in and month out, those people rising up in the leadership, and now I've got every single board member who is on the same page, and we're moving forward. And that's what God has called us to be. That is our distinctive. It's not our cardinal doctrine, but it is our distinctive. It's our part to play in the body of Christ. When God's calling His church to holiness, He's going to raise up the church of Nazarene and other holiness churches like us. And so I'm honored to be here to share that with you. The passage I'd like us to look at, just one verse today, Is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. This message uh, comes from a series I just finished up at Grove City called Red Letters. And we're looking at the hard sayings of Jesus. And as I preached this message to our people about a month ago, the Holy Spirit said, This is what I want you to proclaim at the Holy Summit. So I'm doing this out of obedience to the Holy Spirit, and I trust that He will honor His Word today. Matthew 5, verse 48. You got the words on the screen. Let's just, let's just say them together. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, has anybody else ever stumbled over that verse? Let me see your hand. Okay, if your neighbor didn't raise their hand, they need to be the first at the altar today because they just lied. That is a tough one. I mean... What does Jesus mean by this command? Is He really serious that we can be perfect like our Heavenly Father is perfect? In my research, I've discovered different different kind of uh, reads on this, and some trying to water down possibly the command of Jesus, that high calling to perfection have indicated, well, this really wasn't what Jesus said. Jesus really didn't say these words. This was an overzealous scribe that kind of took what Jesus said to the next level. And that's really what we need to understand this as, not as his specific words. Others will say, well, what Jesus is talking about is an ideal to aim for, to shoot for. We'll never arrive at that perfection here in this life. But Jesus is trying to challenge us and call us, to that level of perfection. Well, I don't know about you, but both of those were not very satisfying to me, so I kept digging. That's what we do, right? We keep digging until God reveals to us what His plan and purpose and His will is. So I've I've found some clues. Before we look at these clues together, let me clarify what Jesus does not mean by this verse, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In a sermon, great sermon, classic sermon on Christian perfection, John Wesley endeavors to show in what sense Christians are not perfect. I just want to touch on them very quickly. First of all, we are not perfect in knowledge. Only God is all-knowing. We will never know and understand. In fact, understanding is not a requirement for walking in holiness. It is obedience and devotion to God. We will never be perfectly knowing in all aspects of this. He also points out, Wesley does, that we are, Christian perfection is not freedom uh, perfection from mistakes. And we learned last night from Dr. Bowling, even a very holy man, he made a mistake, put the basket in the wrong ball in the wrong basket. Okay, it happens to all of us. We all make mistakes from time to time. It's going to happen. Third. Christian perfection is not being perfect from infirmities. By infirmities, Wesley's not only means sickness and disease, but also cultural, genetic disorders. Those transcend the holiness experience in our lives. But, you know, God even is so holy, He can use even those things to accomplish His will and purpose in our lives. But finally, Christians will never be free from temptation. Uh, When I preach this in my... Congregation, I just had a conversation with one of our members. He's in his 70s. He's been serving the Lord for over 50 years. I said, Don, do you still get tempted? He said, Oh, Pastor, every day. I said, You're kidding me. Why? You think after 50 some years, the devil just kind of let up on you and let you, but he doesn't. To be human is to be tempted. We will always be tempted. Well, John Wesley addresses these with us. But in what sense, then, are we made perfect? Let's dig into this verse that Jesus articulates for us here in this Sermon on the Mount. First clue is buried in the very term Jesus uses. Write this in. Perfect refers to the original word. The original word here in the Greek is translated perfect is teleos. I'm taking time to give you a little Greek lesson here because this is a very important word. The word means, from the New Testament dictionary, to complete, to fulfill, to accomplish, or to make mature. And it's interesting to me that this is the same word Jesus used when He hung on the cross. He uttered those immortal words, It is teleos. It's finished. It's complete. The same word He's using. Be telios." therefore as your heavenly Father, is perfect. See, Jesus understood His mission when He walked this earth, did He not? He did not come here just to teach, although He was a master teacher. He did not come here just to perform miracles, although everyone He came in contact with was touched by the power of God through His touch. Jesus came for one purpose. He came to seek and to save those who are lost. Every day of His life, Everything he did was to fulfill the Father's purpose for him is to die on the cross for the sins of the world, period. That that was and is his mission. And when he declared on that cross, it is finished, what he's saying, mission accomplished. It's done. And in the same way, Jesus calls you and me to be perfect. Write this down. Christian perfection means willing one thing. To will one thing. It means living your life focused on Jesus and His will. Everything else fades in the background. is insignificant. The Apostle Paul understood this. Listen to his testimony. I'm tearing up. I'm throwing out with the trash everything else I used to take credit for. Paul could take credit for a lot of things. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was an exemplary Jew. He could talk and... and banter and, and, and uh, debate with the most brilliant of his day. But he says, I'm throwing it all in the trash. Why? Because of Christ. Yes, all the things I once thought I had going for me are insignificant. They're dog dumb. That's pretty uh, descriptive, isn't it? <laughs> I've dumped it all in the trash so that I could embrace Christ and be embraced by Him. That is my passion, Paul says. That's my singleness of purpose. Everything I do, every relationship, everywhere I go, I want, to, I want people to see Jesus in and through me. I want to lift Him up. That's, in the sense, what Jesus is talking about. Christian perfection means to will one thing. Let me illustrate this. You're wondering why I have this ball glove up here, right? You've wondered that. What is that about? Somebody left that up there. Well, uh, last week, in fact, uh, it was two weeks ago, Labor Day weekend, in the state of Ohio, there are dozens and dozens of softball teams that gather in Cincinnati for a Nazarene softball tournament. The Graves family all knows about that. Did they have that back when you were pastoring there? How about you, Dave? Yeah, you know about that? You, you, you know about that. There are 80 teams, 80 softball teams from Nazarene churches, okay? And... Uh, I just thought, maybe, President Graves, you, did you ever play on any of those teams? You did. Well, could I invite you up here and help me out with this illustration right now? Oh. He's getting serious now. Okay, buddy. I wanna show you this glove here. I wanna maintain to you, Dr. Graves, I want you to look this glove over. I just bought this glove yesterday. It's mm-hmm. it's right off the shelf. Mm-hmm. I can tell that. It still has the tags on it. it says what does it say on there? It says Rawlings. Rawlings, yeah. Gold glove. Gold glove. Okay, man. Number one choice of the pros. Right. Okay, that's a brand new glove. Not a blemish on it. Not a scratch on it. Never been. Would you say that's a perfect glove? I would say it's a perfect glove. Right answer. Well, I want to tell you something. I got another glove here. I've had this glove on my shelf for three decades. And have, this glove's taken me a lot of places. It's got, but it's got, it's got some smudges on it, it's got some scrapes on it. See what those, that's bloodstains. That's a whole <laughs> yeah. other story. I want to tell you about that one. <laughs> But I wanna maintain this glove is as perfect as that glove. Step on back there a few steps. Have a little pepper here. Hey, hey! Hey, all right! A little pepper there. One more time. All right, hey, give Dr. Gray's a hand. Thank you, buddy All right. You see, what I'm maintaining is would you pay top dollar for this glove in the store? No, you wouldn't. But I want to tell you, this glove is perfect because it is fulfilling its created purpose. And Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Perfection means to will one thing. Write this in. Write this in. Jesus calls me, this is the first life application. to a perfection of purpose. I wanna tell you, whatever your background today, regardless of your pedigree or lack thereof, regardless of what you have been through, if you will offer Jesus Christ your wholehearted devotion, He will make you perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That ought to set some people free here today. That's amen ground right there. That's perfect, that's teleos. Now, it won't happen if He's fourth place, third place, second place, you know, somebody said, Unless he's Lord of all, he will not be Lord at all. Knowing and obeying him, he must be your first and all-consuming purpose. That's the first clue, what Jesus is talking about here. The second clue, therefore, refers to the original context. Let's look at the context here. My hermeneutics professor, Dr. Morris Weigel, taught me, he said, Mark, whenever you see a therefore in Scripture, you look and see what it's there for. So let's look at the context, okay? Back up to verse 43. Jesus is talking. These are red letters. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your what? Enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. You see what Jesus is doing? There's a link here between being perfect and loving my enemies. Christian perfection, write it in, means loving my enemy. And I'll tell you, church, and I know I'm speaking to the church here today, that is more than anything else, God's love shed abroad in our hearts the defining litmus test of what a holy life looks like. Blessing those who curse us. Loving our enemies. Jesus fleshes this out in Luke chapter 6. This is how the, uh, the message puts it. Love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer for that person. If someone slaps you in the face, stand there and take it. If someone grabs your shirt, gift wrap your best coat and make a present of it. If someone takes unfair advantage of you, use the occasion to practice the servant life. No more tit-for-tat stuff. Live generously. Amen. Love in return for evil is the litmus test of the holy life. You know the story of Corey Ten Boom, a young girl incarcerated during World War II, her family abducted by the Nazis, taken to one of the infamous death camps where thousands of innocent Jews lost their lives, were murdered. I've been to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. It is one of the most sobering, abhorrent experiences I've ever had. Corrie Ten Boom, I believe, was the only member in her family to survive the death camp. She personally saw her sister die right in front of her eyes as a result of the torture of her enemies. And after the war, many of you might not know this part of the story was over, when the Nazis were defeated by the allied forces. She reflects on an encounter she had when one of the very guards that had tortured her family came and asked for her forgiveness. Here's what she writes. That moment, I felt great bitterness swelling in my heart. Romans 7, there it is. I I want to forgive this person, but how can I do that? I knew that unforgiveness would do more harm to me than the guard's whip, so I cried out to the Lord, she writes. Lord, thank you for Romans 5, 5. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given to us. Thank you, Lord, she goes on, that your love in me can do what I cannot do. I could not do it. I was not able, but Jesus in me was able to do it. And she concludes with these words. You see, you never touch so much the ocean of God's love than when you love your enemy. That's what the world is waiting to see in the church, folks. They're waiting to see that we will love people who have different lifestyles than ours, a different value system. We're not talking about compromising the truth. We don't need to compromise the truth, but we need to speak the truth in love every single day. Life application, Jesus calls me to a perfection of love. Now, let me tell you something about this love that Jesus is talking about here. It transcends human capacity. At the Spring Holiness Summit, Dr. Dennis Kenlaw said, this is not human love on steroids. That's not what Jesus is talking about here kind of working ourselves up, making ourselves, forcing ourselves to love when it's not really there. No, it has to, we have to jettison our own self-generated uh, love, and we need to receive right from the throne of God His divine love to fill our beings. Amen. Purely divine love. And that leads to the third clue. Clue number three. Perfect is possible only through God's power. The power to love perfectly can only come from Him. You see, the last thing Jesus promised His followers before He ascended into heaven was His divine power enabling them to be a loving witness in their world. You know this verse. Let's say it out loud together. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my... Say it again. You will be my... Say it again. You will be my in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's that's God's call to us. That's Jesus' challenge to us, to be His promise and His challenge. Did you catch the verse that that I quoted from Corey Ten Boom, Romans chapter 5, verse 5? God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. He's the King. Write this in. Christian perfection requires being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, in a holiness summit, we all know that, don't we? You'd expect me to say that. But you see, if I try to serve God in my own ability, I will fail. You will fail. If I try to overcome temptation in the flesh, I will fail. You will fail. If I try to serve and love my enemies in my own ability, I will fail every time. Because if I try to love others in my own power, it will not work. It is not by force nor by strength, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. And the good news that Jesus promised is that He would give His Holy Spirit to all who place their trust in Him. Listen to these red letters in John 14. I will ask the Father. He will give you another counselor who will never leave you. I like that part. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. You see, the moment we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, His Spirit comes and takes up residence in our lives. But here's the challenge of Christian perfection. The Holy Spirit will never force His way where He is not invited. My father told me something once. Gene Fuller, some of you know him, former president of this uh, board of trustees here many years ago. He said, Mark, you know, I was reading the other day and it came to me that all the images of the Holy Spirit, the symbols of the Holy Spirit in the Bible, fire, wind, water, oil, did you notice they all take the path of least resistance? Isn't that interesting? The Holy Spirit is the most sensitive of the Godhead. He will only go where he is invited. That's why the scriptures say, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't put out the Spirit's fire. He may be resident in your life, but he cannot be president until he has complete control of everything that you are. And this is where many followers of Christ become defeated. We try to live in our own ability. Let me illustrate it this way. Let's say this glove is your life. It's designed and made to catch balls. So let's see how this glove does catching catch this ball. You ready? Didn't do too well, did it? Here, Dan. Let's try it again. Maybe just bad luck there. No, 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 no. Now, let me show you something. You like that? Ah. Let's say this hand represents the Spirit of God. This hand has great power and purpose. This is my life. My life is powerless. It's designed... This is what I'm made to do. This glove loves to catch balls. It's designed to catch. Its passion is to catch balls, but it is utterly helpless to do that until this glove is filled with the hand and the power of God Almighty. Now, you say this illustration breaks down because, you know, this glove doesn't have a will. That's right. You have a will. I have a will. That's what makes it even more challenging. We've got to die out to that. And every moment of every day, let him take control. And here's the best part. Here's the best part. I love this. This gets me blessed every time I, I talk about this. I want to maintain to you today that this glove, even though Dr. Graves, he did a pretty good job with that this glove is perfect. This glove. Is even more perfect. You know why? Every ball player will tell you a glove really isn't a glove until you break that thing in, right? Oh, stiff. And God has to break us in. Come on, help me out now. He's got to bend us, He's got to beat on us, He's got to twist us and roll us. And you know what? He uses all the things in our lives, all the things we like to say, God that hadn't happened, I could sure... No, he's... God doesn't waste anything. Aren't you glad for that? Amen. He uses it all right. to make us us Perfect in His image. Amen. What does it mean to be perfect as our Heavenly Father's perfect? Did I give you the last one? Did I give you the last outla- application? Are we done? What's the last one? Jesus calls me to a perfection of dependence upon Him. Dependence on Him. So what it means, finally, is Jesus says, you can be perfect as your heavenly Father's perfect. Wow! Doesn't mean you'll be free from mistakes or misjudgments or infirmities or temptations. In fact, God even uses those things to make you like Himself. Doesn't mean that you'll have perfect judgment you can have all kinds of scars and tears and rips and smudges in your life and still be perfect as long as you love God with all of your heart, Amen. all of your soul, your mind, and strength. Jesus calls you to be perfect. It is a perfection of purpose as you daily focus on Him. It's a perfection of love that brings out the best in you when the world puts the worst on you. I remember, Dr. Deal, you saying several years ago, "You know, uh, what comes out of you when life puts a squeeze on and whatever we're filled with, when, when life puts a squeeze on, that's what's gonna come out. I wanna be so filled with Him that when, when the world puts it on me, when my enemies surround me, when all hell's breaking break loose around me, it'll be His Spirit and His love, just, just like a crushed grape, the sweetness of that grape will flow out for His glory. Perfection of dependence upon His Spirit. I asked the Holy Spirit how He wanted me to close this today. And he took me back to last April. Of course, being from Ohio, I was right there in the backyard of the East Summit. And that was a great time at uh, Ohio Christian University. One of the speakers, they were all great, all wonderful. But you're going to hear one of them right after, later on, Reverend Tom Hermes. I mean, what a great master preacher. I'm glad I'm preaching before him. That's all I can say. <laughs> but Dennis Kenlaw also spoke. Dr. Dennis Kenlaw is one of my heroes. As I know he is, many of you. Very frail man. Don't know how many more times we're going to get to hear Dr. Kenlaw preach. They set, a, set a, a chair up there and he just kind of propped up on that stool and put a mic here. And I thought, is, this, is he going to pass out before he's done for the evening, you know? When he started to speak, boom. The anointing of God was there. That booming voice with authority rang true. And I'm taking notes, man. I'm just, you know, I'm writing. This is great. Oh, man, this is good. Still fresh, still relevant. How old is he? 80, mid-80s. It's incredible. And he's talking about love. That was his theme. The very theme we've talked about here today. And I'm saying, that's right, Lord, the church needs to love the world. We need to love our enemies. We need to to be that kind of church for you. And it's like the Holy Spirit said, Mark, Mark, that's not what I'm saying to you today, son. I said, excuse me, Lord? You ever talk to the Lord that way? (laughs) He surprises you. He does me all the time. I said, Mark, I know you have a, a love for lost people. I know you love. The world. Those who live in the world. But I want to know, Mark, if you have the same love for my bride that you did when I called you to be my pastor to my people. Oh, he got me. I've been raised in the church all my life. I love the church of the Nazarene. But you know, serving in the church and leadership, you kind of see the underbelly of things from time to time. You get a little bit frustrated with uh, the institutional paralysis, the bureaucracy. Can I just be honest? Can we just be honest with each other today? This is confession time for Mark Fuller. And I had said some things in certain settings were pretty cynical, sarcastic, and the Holy Spirit, he nailed me about that. And he said, Mark, I I really want to use you to frame my gloriously liberating message of holiness in the 21st century. I want to use you that way, Mark, but I can't use you with your attitudes like that. When you're cynical of my bride, when you're sarcastic, I can't use you. And I humbled myself that night. I said, Lord, open up the floodgates of heaven. Could the church be our enemy? Wow, what a thought. If that's the case, we need to love the bride. You know what? Not much has changed in the frustrations but God has renewed Dr. Graves. A love for his church. that is is burning brightly. And I'm more committed than ever to be his herald, to be his messenger, to call a world that wants to see genuine, authentic living of holiness, no doubt. I want to live that way. How about you? Will you stand with me? Pray with me, would you? Holy Spirit, you are here. You've been here (laughs) all the way along. Thank you for being faithful to us. Thank you for this message, Lord, of perfection. Yes, we can't be perfect as you are perfect. Fulfilling the purpose that you have for us. Lord, I pray that that is a liberating truth for some people here today. You've taken that heaviness of, of never measuring up right off of their shoulders That is not up to you. Faithful is He who calls you, and He will do it. Amen. Do it, Lord, for some people today. Lord, there's others of us, maybe our love has grown a little cold, Maybe somebody else here has become a little cynical, sarcastic. I'm just asking you, Holy Spirit, to do your work like you did on me. Lord, I'm a happy pastor. (laughs) I'm so blessed and humbled. That you would use me, use us all, Lord. Make us sweet people. Make us humble people. Break down any last vestige of pride that would raise its ugly head, oh God. And fill us with your holy love. Oh, that's what I pray for. I pray for a baptism of your holy love. Lord, this message you have entrusted to us is tailor-made for this generation. Tailor-made for them. And it breaks my heart when I see them. In droves leaving the church, they just aren't seeing the connection. Help us as leaders, help us as pastors, as teachers, to help them make the connection. To not just speak the words of Jesus, but see the life of Jesus lived out every day. Loving our enemies, not judging. Forgive us for our prejudice and pride, Lord. I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would apply this message to everyone here. I'm going to ask Alan to come and lead us in that song.
1: To me and to others has been most rewarding and a great blessing. After the summit in Ohio, I said uh, to uh, my staff, during this summit, I just heard seven of the best holiness sermons that I have heard in decades. And uh, coming here, I can say the same thing. Some of the best holiness preaching I've heard in a long, long time. And I thank God for it. And the thing that I love about these summits is we're not here for an academic exercise and yet there's real substance to what we're hearing. But we are here to simply proclaim the message that is being ignored, greatly ignored all across our holiness denominations and sometimes under attack. And it's just nice to come and say, this we believe, this is who we are, and this is what we intend to do for the glory of God. And it's a celebration when we come and rejoice and give praise to God that He has given us this most liberating, transforming message that we have to proclaim. And as someone else has already said, this is no time to back off. This is a great day and opportunity for us to proclaim this message. At the Holiness Summit in Ohio, I got to preach first, and uh, I want to tell you, sitting here service after service, I thought, you know, these guys keep sweeping the deck, and what else is there left to say? In fact, I called my administrative assistant a little bit ago, and I said, see if you can get me an earlier flight out. I said, I think I need to come home, but nevertheless. She said, no, I can't get you one that early, so I said, okay. So uh, here I am, and uh, I'm thrilled to be here, and thank God for this honor and for this privilege. And and can I just say, since uh, I think you're almost all Nazarenes, except maybe for myself, um, I'm delighted with the uh, partnership that we have entered into uh, with the uh, with our denomination, the Churches of Christ and Christian Union and the Church of the Nazarene. It's already proving to be very beneficial and a blessing. And uh, back several months ago, Dr. Deal, I don't know if you'll remember this, but uh, we had just had a meeting and Dr. Deal was someplace on the other side of the globe where he usually is. and um, He sent me an email with some comments about it and then he made this comment. He said, I'm finding that overseas and outside the United States I'm finding the the best response and the greatest response to the holiness message and I sent back an email and I said that's true and I found that to be true but I'm gonna preach this doctrine until I die, as long as God gives me the strength and grace to do it. And he fired back an email, and he said, and so will I. And so uh, thank God for the opportunity to once again articulate this this great message. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Acts, and chapter 1 for our scripture reading, Acts chapter 1. And I want to begin reading at verse 1. Will you stand for the reading of God's word? by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth." After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. I must confess to you that I prepared a message for this summit that um, God, since getting here, has drawn my attention to this passage. And once again, I want to come back to it again. I believe it's the message that God is burning on my own heart. And I know the only way to get rid of that burning is to deliver it. And so I pray that God's anointing will be upon it. I simply want to speak to you on what I consider to be the greatest need of the church of Jesus Christ today. The greatest need in our holiness denominations and our holiness churches. The most desperate need. This is just bottom line stuff. I believe this is the great desperate need of the hour. You may be seated and may God add his blessing to the reading of the message. In these verses, Jesus is sharing his final message his last words with his disciples before ascending back to heaven. Since Jesus knew these were his last words, we must conclude that they were very carefully and specifically chosen. These are extremely important words that demand our thoughtful consideration and our obedience. In light of what Jesus knew to be their desperate need, he gave them a very specific command do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. Wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You know that the promise of the Father was given in Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 27, What God said, there was going to come a day when he would pour out his Holy Spirit on all flesh. And he said, in that day, I will put my Spirit within you. Not simply coming upon us from time to time for some momentous occasion, but that the day would come when we could enjoy the constant, the continual, indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And now, as Jesus is about to leave this earth, and ascend back to the right hand of the Father, he looks at his disciples, and he uses a word that we would rarely hear in a church growth seminar. He uses the word wait. Just wait. When would you ever hear that? Around the church, and especially in a church growth seminar. And what he was saying to them in so many words, don't even think about going out and doing ministry. Don't even think about going out and raising the dead and healing the sick and trying to cast out demons. Don't even think about going out and preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ because you're not ready. Not ready? I mean these men had been with Jesus for three years on on the job training. They had listened to almost every sermon he ever preached. They had observed almost every miracle he'd ever performed. They had had the opportunity to ask him scores and scores of questions as they walked the dusty trails of Galilee. And now, after three years, as he's about to leave, Jesus looks at them, and in so many words, he is saying, You're not ready, not yet. Not until you receive the promise of the Father, which is the gift. Of the Holy Spirit because Jesus knew that this was their desperate need and it was absolutely essential that if the church was to survive and thrive these men the leaders had to empty themselves of their own agendas of their own self-centered ambitions and desires and they must be filled with the Holy Spirit Today we have all kinds of meetings when we try to evaluate the church, where we've been, where we are, and where we're going, where we want to go. And those are always very important exercises. But sometimes we come to the conclusion that what we really need in the church today is better organizational structure. And if we could just get our structure together, and if we could get a good pithy vision statement, to use an O'Reilly word. And if we could, we could just get our goals and our ambitions, our dreams, if we could just get this all down on paper and put it together in a good business plan, quotes, in a good business plan that the mega corporation world would be proud of and proud to behold. If we could just put that together, we could really do something for God. And you know, after having spent decades of my life in administrative work, I understand the value, the validity, the importance of good organizational structure. I understand the motivation of goals and of having a game plan and a vision statement. I understand that. That has its place and it's very important but I believe I'm sent of God to simply say to you today God does not move on structures and God does not move on game plans and God does not move on vision statements. His spirit might inspire them in our heart but when God moves he moves on and in and through people which leads me to say I am convinced it is in another seminar planning session we need as important important as that is, but what we desperately need is to empty ourselves a great kenosis that we might experience a great infilling and be filled with the Spirit of God. Sometimes we look at the church and we say, you know, if we just had more talent, better personnel, a more highly trained, sophisticated leadership team, we could really do something for God. And I value training and I admire talent. In fact, sometimes I, I get in some places where they don't have much of either one. And I want to tell you, you really kind of miss it. I, 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 remember, I, I remember going into a, whole, a, a meeting in a church and the, uh, the ladies playing the piano and the organ. That, that's an organ over there in case you've forgotten what an organ is. But anyway, I heard one this morning. That was amazing. First time in months I've heard an organ. But anyway, they had a piano and organ and they were playing both of them. Both of these dear ladies were now in their 80s. And I admired them for their willingness to continue using their gifts. The problem was, the lady who was playing the piano was nearly blind, and she could only play by note. And the lady that was playing the organ was nearly deaf, and she could only play by ear. Here I am in the middle of the platform, the piano and organ on either side. Every song we sang that week except one, the piano and the organ were in two different keys. It was painful. I mean, it was hard on my ears. One time in that meeting, I think they got in the same key. And would you believe it, the piano and organ were so far out of tune with each other that it still hurt your ears. And and that was the same church where the pastor had been in this terrible automobile accident and it left him with some kind of an injury that when he would sweat he would only sweat on half of his face and this is true and it was hot, no air conditioning, you missed that too I can tell you no air conditioning in the church and as he would lead the service sweat would just roll off one side of his face and the other side would be completely dry and and it was an interesting study for me uh, trying to endure the pain of the music but nevertheless one night he got to crying and tears only came out of one eye, and I thought that's amazing. One night he blew his nose. No, no. I did not look. I did not look. I did not care whether both sides were working or not. And if that wasn't enough, I got up one night to play my trumpet for the offertory And as I was coming near the end of the song, a woman in the back of the church with flaming red hair, very disheveled in her appearance, a brown bag sack in her hand with spirits on the inside, and they were not holy spirits, came staggering up the aisle. As I finished the song, she leaned over the altar and handed me a dollar bill. And she said, boy, that was beautiful. I want to give you a dollar. And I got embarrassed. I mean, I, I had never experienced that before in my life most people pay me not to play my trumpet but nevertheless that time she was gonna give me a dollar and I was embarrassed I didn't handle it very well I said oh no no just just put in the offering plate that's fine oh she said you think you're too good to take my money and she proceeded to cuss me out right there in the front of the church I turned to the pastor I said man she's all yours and I looked and he was now sweating on both sides of his face Well, it looked like that anyway. Absolute miracle. I get some places where there's not much talent and not much training and you really kind of miss it. But all of the talent and all of the training in the world will never take the place of the anointing. It will never take the place of the power of the Holy Spirit. And the most desperate, urgent need that we have in the body of Christ is for us to empty ourselves to make that absolute abandonment of ourselves to the will of God and be baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire in God's sanctifying grace. Sometimes we sit around and say, oh, what we need is better doctrine. And so we sit around trying to come up with user-friendly doctrines and user-friendly terminology that will not offend anybody that would be politically correct may god help us you see we don't need to be so concerned about being politically correct we need to be concerned about being biblically correct And, and i just i just want to say here today and i know i'm among friends there really isn't anything wrong seriously wrong with wesleyan arminian theology and doctrine There really isn't. Like many of you, I've had the opportunity of studying most of the great systematic theologies. And Wesleyan, Arminian doctrine and theology will stand up with any one of them. It is as biblical and practical and it's been tested and tried and proven. Certainly, you might be able to improve on it someplace if you're smart enough and brilliant enough. But our problem is not our doctrine. That's not what hinders us. That's not what holds us back. We need to understand it and articulate it and live it. We need to experience it and live it. That's not our problem. Our problem is we need to proclaim this message for the glory of God. And in the dumbing down of America, in case you hadn't noticed, what we love to say around the the church world today is, uh, doctrine isn't important anymore. We just preach Jesus at our church. I I hope you haven't said that because I'm going to say something now that will probably offend you and make you very angry. That is one of the dumbest statements I've ever heard in my life. I believe in confrontational preaching, Dan. One of the dumbest statements I've ever heard in my life. You preach Jesus, you're going to preach doctrine. The question is, is it going to be good doctrine or bad doctrine? Is it going to be systematic or is it just going to be some sort of a hodgepodge? Is it going to be good or bad? If you preach Jesus, you'll be preaching Jesus. Doctrine. Why not get a good, clear, systematic doctrine and theology in your heart and in your mind and in your bones and build your messages and the Word of God on that kind of truth? It's one of the reasons in the great charismatic movement, and I'm not here to attack them or put them down, one of the reasons there's so much heresy in that movement in spite of all that they have accomplished is that they really don't have a systematic theology. It is a hodgepodge that comes from here that there and everywhere. We have a wonderful doctrine. It is a liberating truth. It is a transforming truth. And I it has stood the test of the years. Our problems, not our doctrine. Oh, you know what the big one is today? We evaluate the church and we say, you know, if we could just figure out how we're going to worship, if we could just get our forms and our styles of worship. And you know, and some churches have worked this out and have it pretty well resolved, but I want to tell you. As I move across this land of ours, it is not resolved in the hearts and minds of a whole lot of people. And and it is still a controversy. So we have these big debates. Are we gonna sing choruses or are we gonna sing hymns? Are we gonna sing off the wall? Or are we gonna sing out of the book? Are we gonna be casual? Are we gonna get rid of the pulpits? Or are we gonna, you know, are we gonna wear sports shirts? Or are we gonna be old fashioned and wear a tie? And you know, just we have these these big debates over all of this today. You know, here's here, here's what I wanna say. Just a couple little things. You know, people my age bracket, we need to be more flexible. We we really do. We need to make certain that our attitude is not carnal, but that it's more Christ-like and Christian. And we need to maintain flexibility the older we get. And some of those younger people, they really need to be exposed to the substance and the great truth and doctrine in some of those great hymns. They will love them if they have an opportunity to experience them. So there, I guess you know where I am on that. I'm in that older group trying to be more flexible. And I think that uh, Ella Mae and I, we made up our minds one day standing in church in, in, in one of the most outrageous services we'd ever been. It was not in the United States, it was down in Mexico. We were down there and I mean to tell you it was wild. And it was so loud we had headaches. And I said to Ella May, I will not allow this to take away my joy. I will not allow this. I will not allow this to destroy my worship of the Lord. And we will be flexible. We'll put plugs in our ears if we have to. But we are going to experience the joy of the Lord. And we'll not allow anything that man can do to us to take away our joy, the joy of the Lord, which is indeed our strength. And I, I just think that, um, you know, I'll just make this, this one cautionary word. I have the fear, maybe not in our churches, but I have the fear in some churches, we worship our worship. The Great Welsh Revival in 1904, it was called the Singing Revival. And they, it was an incredible thing. It was a time they'd come and they'd sing and God would move. But after a while, their singing became the end in itself instead of a means to an end. And most church historians will tell you they sang themselves out of revival. Well, that's just a few little thoughts on that, but here's what I really want to say. All of these things are important. They all deserve our time and our attention. They all have their place. But my concern is, it seems to me, that the most desperate, urgent need in the body of Christ is the one that's getting the least amount of attention and is the one that we desperately need to be presenting to our people that they might know the fullness of the Spirit in God's sanctifying grace. Well, they they obeyed the command of Christ. They stayed in Jerusalem in an upper room in constant prayer. Now think about this, had they grown impatient and failed to be obedient, they would have never received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And without the Holy Spirit, the church would not have existed. There is no substitute for obedience. There is no personal Pentecost without obedience. There is no entire sanctification without complete obedience to the known will of God. And that would lead me to say even to this splendid congregation, are you walking in all the light? Are you walking in the light that God's Spirit has given to you? So important that we do. We sign our own spiritual death warrant when we fail to obey that divine command to wait before God in a great self-emptying until we have been filled with the Holy Spirit. Our failure to continue moving aggressively in this area is one of the reasons we have so many sterile, barren, fruitless Christians in our churches. I believe it's one of the reasons more pastors are getting voted out of their churches than ever before. I believe it's one of the reasons that such a low percentage pay their tithe. I believe it's one of the reasons that we have fewer and fewer going into the ministry and responding to the call to world missions. And I think the whole church is vitally important that we come back to this message, I'm convinced it is the most desperate need. It's one of the reasons we have so many churches, even in our holiness denominations, that are absolutely dead. They are out of business. They just maybe don't know it yet and are not willing to admit it. I get in some places when we used to sit on the platform, I'd look at those people and I'd say, Lord, whatever it is that these folks have, if it's catching, I hope you'll inoculate me, because I sure don't want it. Looks like death, acts like death, smells like death, and it absolutely is dead. And I want nothing to do with it. But oh, may God help us. I think it was D.L. Moody who said you might as well try to see without eyes and hear without ears or breathe without lungs as to attempt to live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. And we've heard that articulated so clearly and powerfully here today and yesterday through the anointing of God's Spirit. And so these people secluded themselves. They got away from all distractions, and they really got focused, and they waited. Hard for us to do in this day and age of instance. But they did not want to settle for some kind of a weak substitute. And sometimes it seems to me we've settled for substitute for the Holy Spirit. I think there was a time maybe in our history when we substituted legalism for the Holy Spirit. And we thought if you looked a certain way, and didn't go to certain places, then you were holy. And we found out that that was not always the case. And then I think there may be times when we substitute emotionalism for the Holy Spirit. And we think the more noise and the more demonstration that there is. You remember we used to get in those services where if the preacher didn't get to preach, that was something to be celebrated, that was a great moment because the preacher didn't get to preach. And what happened is after a while we learned how to manipulate that. We have become masters at manipulating the mood of the congregation. We can do it with our voice. We can do it with our sound system. We can do it with the lights. We can do it in so many different ways. And we have learned through emotion to manipulate people. And I want to say to you, my friends, I believe that we are going to discover that that kind of manipulation simply does not produce holy men and women. But it's going to take the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives to produce true disciples and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. No, the the big one today is I think we substitute the most recent religious fad for the Holy Spirit. You let something happen here someplace across the country, And people will come from all over the world. You remember a few years ago when we had the Toronto blessing, they called it? people literally came from all over the world to try to learn how to moo like a cow and to roar like a lion and how to laugh like a hyena you couldn't book a motel room in Toronto Canada you had to book a flight weeks and months in advance because everybody wanted to go to Toronto and find out how to moo like a cow and how to roar like a lion and laugh like a hyena you know I learned how to do that when my kids were babies i, I didn 't have to go to church to learn how to do that. Well now that 's pretty well gone by the wayside. there 's still a little of bit around here and there, but basically that 's gone, and tomorrow it 'll be something else. and the day after that'll be something else until our people are totally confused, and all we want to know is, does it work, and if it works, how does it work, and what 's the method? Instead of seeking the face of God and the mind of God and asking Him, it's not that we cannot learn from others, but God, how would you have me to minister in this place to these people in this time and in this moment and getting a message from God? I get so sick and tired of the canned preaching that I hear over and over again. I know exactly which internet place they go to to get those sermons and I say, oh God, For a day when our ministers would live in your word and walk with you and get on their knees and get into the scriptures and find something fresh from the throne of God so that when they go in front of their people, they will have a message that is anointed and blessed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And they prayed. They didn't gather to grumble. They didn't even gather to eat. They didn't gather for fellowship. They came to seek the face of God. And they were in one accord. They were of one mind. They wanted the promise of the Father, the gift of the Holy Spirit. They wanted it more than a drowning man wants air. They wanted it more than a thirsty person wants water. They wanted it more than a starving person wanted food. They longed for the presence of God. And I ask you, where has that intense passion for the presence of God Where has it gone? We are far more passionate about seeking religious entertainment than we are seeking the face of God and the presence of God. Nothing wrong in itself of religious entertainment, and it can be a blessing. You say, well, what are you talking about? Well, just announce that you're going to have a missionary come and speak and see how many people show up. Announce you're going to have a prayer meeting, just a plain old-fashioned prayer meeting. See how many people stay away. But announce you're going to have a gospel concert and watch us pack the place out. All I'm saying about that is this. It is an indication of the spiritual shallowness that exists in the body of Christ. And I have the fear we are never going to see the move of the Holy Spirit on North America that we long for and yearn for and most desperately need until more of God's people get more hunger and passion for the presence and the power of Almighty God than we are for religious entertainment. Without that, I have the fear it will never happen. And I know I can't put God in a box. But somebody somewhere is going to have to get on their face before God and begin to passionately seek His face. They that hunger and thirst for righteousness, they are the ones that will be filled. Well, they got the desired results. You go to Acts chapter 2 to see it. said, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And all of them, I like that, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit two powerful things that I mentioned briefly that happened when they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Number one, their hearts were purified by faith. You know, we are in danger of losing this aspect of the Wesleyan message today, purity of heart. We, we love to throw the word around holiness. We, we love to talk about being holy. We, we're very free in using the words, Spirit-filled life but it's not often you hear a whole lot about the deeper cleansing of the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, there is a warfare going on in the heart of every born-again believer. It is a warfare between an anti-God disposition that they inherited from Adam that came with them into this world. It's anti-God. It is against God. You cannot simply outgrow it. You cannot simply somehow correct it and train it. And the, the good news is that in their heart is also the Holy Spirit helping them to suppress that and hold that under and enabling them to live a Christian life. But there's this constant warfare going on in the heart of every born-again believer. And you can thank God you ever showed up at a holiness church. I say that with all of my heart because tens of thousands of people who go to church every week, they love God, they love their church, they love their pastor, they love the word, but they have never heard there's a solution for that pollution. They have never heard that there's a deeper cleansing of the blood of Christ in God's sanctifying grace where that sinful disposition can be cleansed. And and we debate, you know, what kind of terminology to use. And I like what Dr. Kinlaw said in his message at the summit in Ohio. He said, all I want to say is that when you are sanctified holy, that carnal disposition is gone. I don't know any better way to say it than that, but there is a cleansing where you can be set free from that carnal disposition and can have a heart that's clean and pure with pure motives and pure intentions and begin to grow and progress in holiness and become more and more like Jesus. Peter testified about that in chapter 15. When he talked about the fact that God gave the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles just as he had to the Jews, and you remember what he said. God put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. You could have a pure heart. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The psalmist said, who shall ascend under the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And you can have a heart that is clean and pure through the blood of Jesus Christ and the power of God's Holy Spirit. And The second thing that happened is their hearts, they received power. But you will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Power to witness, power to preach, power to teach, power to say no to the devil, no to temptation, power to say yes to God, power to become a dynamic witness, power to reach lost people for Christ, a passion to know Christ intimately, a passion for lost people. And I wouldn't give you a plugged nickel for the kind of holiness that does not manifest some sort of divine spiritual power that gets us outside the four walls of the church and enables us to penetrate our communities and our nation and our world with the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit will not lie dormant within us. If we expect to live a spirit-filled holy life, we must allow the Spirit of the Lord to move us out of our comfort zone and move us outside the four walls of the church and move us out into a lost world where we can be effective for the glory of God in reaching lost people for the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about this now. They didn't have any structure. They didn't have any money. They didn't even have any buildings. All they had was Holy Ghost power. And here we are today. We have structure coming out of our years. And we have more money than we've ever had before. And we have nicer buildings than we've ever had before. Thank God for all those things. But I wonder, where is that power? Are we seeing that power manifest? Why is it that we can see this in other parts of the world, but we're not seeing it here, right here, in our own nation, in our own land? God's the same here as there. He has not changed. And I just believe that somehow we've got to break away from the apathy and the nominal life that we are living and begin once again. I, 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 I love the way Mrs. Seaman put it. In that message that stirred my heart that many of you heard or read, we had to make a decision, are we going to be a great church or a holy people? And she said, we decided to be a great church. You know, I don't think they're incompatible. I think we can be a holy people and be a part of a great church. The church of Jesus Christ Do not, does not have to be incompatible. We battle that same battle in our denomination. And uh, my prayer is that God will help us above all else to be holy men and women, living dynamic lives, fruitful lives, that will see men and women coming to Christ. My dad, at the age of five, had migrated down from Mosul, Iraq. Our family is Assyrian, and our roots are in Mosul, Iraq, and because of jihad, They migrated down to Turkey when he was five years of age. And the Kurdish Muslims came down into Turkey on that jihad. Our family was Christian. Originally they had been Assyrian Orthodox and then had been led to the Lord by missionaries into a personal relationship with Christ. They invaded that village where he was living with his parents and grandparents and family. And there was a horrible conflict that took place. And by the dawn of the next morning, every adult male in the village had been killed. And then the fun and games started. All in the name of Jihad, all in the name of Allah, they raped the women. My dad at five watched those soldiers take his cousins, little babies, twirl them by their heels and bash their heads against stone walls. All in the name of jihad. He watched them as he threw some of his cousins in the air, caught them on their bayoneted rifles, and ripped them apart. Looted and plundered the homes. He heard the screams of the women as they were brutalized, beaten, and raped. And then they lined the women up and they said, if you renounce your faith in Jesus, we'll let you live. And if you refuse, we're going to kill you. We're going to take your kids and we're going to raise them in the Muslim religion." My grandmother looked down the barrel of that bayoneted rifle in the eyes of that Muslim soldier holding the hand of her five-year-old son and her four-year-old daughter and said, kill me if you must. Take my son and my daughter, love them, and take care of them. But I cannot, I will not, I will not renounce my faith in Jesus Christ. He is my Savior. You know, there are some things worth dying for. And if you don't have a faith and a commitment to Jesus Christ that's worth dying for, then you need to get on your knees and find one that will make it worth it to you. They lined those women up, marched them out of town, shot them down, buried them in shallow graves. A Muslim soldier picked my dad up off the street, took him home, and from five until nine and a half, he was just kicked around from one Muslim family to another and raised in the Muslim religion. Nine and a half, an uncle found him. Was a miracle that he ever found him. Kidnapped him, smuggled him out of the country, sent him to the United States. And as a young teen immigrant boy growing up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, he was a ticking time bomb, filled with rage and hatred and revenge in his heart. He lived for the day when he could get back to Turkey and find those people that had massacred his family and get revenge. And he had this trigger temper, and the kids at school made fun of him because he had this terrible, heavy accent and. He was exploding, and you can't treat a little boy that way and, and not turn him into a ticking time bomb. But in the wonderful providence of God, God put him right next door to a Sunday school teacher, Mr. and Mrs. Hood, in a little primitive Methodist church. And they got him into church, and at 15, he found Christ as his Savior. The blood of the martyrs cries out to God in heaven. All those prayers my grandmother prayed, I think they were now being answered. I don't know. We don't know what happened to his sister. But we know what happened to him. From 15 to 17, he struggled and he wrestled, had very little help, very little guidance, trying to live a Christian life, but struggling with these emotions and that bitterness and that hatred, knowing it wasn't right and praying over it and seeking God. And at 17 years of age, he heard the first sermon he had ever heard in his life on perfect love, on a second work of grace. It was a message, Dr. Mark, like what we heard this morning. Loving God with all of your heart, your neighbor as yourself, and yes, even your enemies. Muslims, in his case. And he said, I sat there as 17 in everybody's mission in downtown Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and listened to that message, first one he'd ever heard, and he said, Lord, this is exactly what I need. And he hit the altar that night. The last time I visited my dad... Had no idea it'd be my last conversation with him. He was 86 and failing health, but he'd just preached the day before for my brother in Columbus, Ohio. And I'm away back from a meeting and back to Indiana and stopped to see my mom and dad. And I was about to leave. I'll never forget this, as long as I live. He said, son, before you leave, if you have time, I'd just like to share my testimony with you one more time. I said, you know something, dad? I'd like to hear it one more time and he went through that story that i'd heard a thousand times and then he came down to that day when he went to the altar to seek sanctification he said son this is what i want to tell you so this is what i want to say to you one more time he said all i know is that when i knelt at that altar i was struggling with bitterness and hatred and revenge and malice I was wrestling and struggling and trying to deal with it but I want to tell you when I got up from that altar I left it there and all I know is that when I got up from that altar all of that hatred and bitterness and rage it was gone and in its place there was a new passion now my passion was to go back to the Middle East and find the people that had massacred my family and share the love of Jesus Christ with them and after he got his six kids through college which is no easy task on a holiness preacher's salary. Every time he could scrape together enough dimes, dollars, and nickels, he'd head back to the Middle East. And in his 80s, God gave him one of the most remarkable ministries that one could ever hope to have among Muslim people as he led many of them with love into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I simply want to say to you, Blessed be the name of the Lord Jesus i want to say to you this message works it's real it's genuine god can do more for us i'm not putting down psychologists and psychiatrists we need them in this day and age as never before and some of them can be very helpful some of them can be very harmful amen hermes but nevertheless i want to say to you god can do more at an altar prayer in some of our people's hearts than it could happen on the couch many many visits and hundreds and hundreds of dollars if they would be willing to surrender and abandon and say the big yes to God and let God do a work of grace I know that sounds old-fashioned but look I'm the oldest guy to preach this week anyway so I you gotta understand where I'm coming from and I believe this with all of my heart and I said to my dad that day dad I would have never dreamed that you ever had trouble with rage I would have never dreamed that you ever had any bitterness. I would have never dreamed that you had ever had any hatred in your heart. I never saw that. And, Dad, I want to say to you one of the greatest reasons I came to the message. And to the re experience of heart holiness is because I saw it reflected in you when you didn't know I was listening into your board meetings, when you didn't know I was the unseen guest. I said I might have been the only unseen guest in some of those board meetings. I'm not sure the Lord was there, but I was watching you, Dad, and I was listening to you, and you never disappointed me, and you never let me down. And when we criticize all those church bosses and those mean bullies in the church that were picking on you, you would never allow it in your presence. And you'd say, we need to pray for these people, and we need to love them. And you taught me something, Dad. This message of holiness sometimes is better caught than taught. Thank God we can have it both ways. But I saw it in my mom and my dad. And Dr. Deal, like you, I'll preach this as long as God gives me the breath and the strength because I believe it's liberating and transformative. Oh, it's been a wonderful, wonderful week already. But as we come down to the close of this service, I would just like for us to sing that it's now an old chorus. We used to think it was a new one. Come, Holy Spirit, I need you. And I I would just say this. It may be that... There's some people here today that you'd just like to ask God for a fresh touch, a fresh infilling of the Spirit. You've been sanctified. You probably wouldn't be here otherwise. But you, And there could be someone here who is not sanctified. and This would be a, wonder, what a wonderful place to be sanctified at a holiness summit. And that could happen this morning. It could happen to you. It could be there are just some that just feel like you'd like to come and renew your vows. To live it, to teach it, to preach it, to proclaim it. Whether you're a minister or a lay person, and you'd like to just renew that commitment and ask God for a fresh touch, a fresh infilling. One of the great things to come out of our summit in Ohio was a number of my pastors said to me, look, we believe this but we really have neglected it. We've been preaching on all these other great themes and great subjects, but we've neglected this truth. We realize we've made a great mistake. You know, it takes a big man to admit they've made a mistake. You know, my admiration for Bill Hybels has increased a lot just because he's willing to say, I've been wrong for 35 years. It takes a big man to do that. Some of our guys said, look, I've been wrong and I need to proclaim this. And they hit the altar during that summit. Did business with God. Now they're coming back to me and they're telling me the results. And I thank God for it. That's one reason I believe so strongly in these kinds of experiences we're having here today. Let's stand together. And as we sing this chorus, if you have a... Dis-